Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Sexual assault can start out with grooming from someone who seems trustworthy at first. The perpetrator sometimes puts himself in the role of mentor and works to eventually get their victims alone. It's impossible to predict every situation, but there are some patterns and red flags that might indicate a problem. And men have a responsibility for raising awareness and calling out bad behavior. We'll get guidance today about ways to help end sexual assault. We're back right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration plans to hold advisory committee meetings next month regarding COVID-19 vaccines, including emergency use for younger children. Currently, adults and children five and older are eligible for vaccines. There's yet to be approval for children under five. FDA Commissioner Robert Califf on Friday told a group of journalists the FDA has a written request for emergency use authorization from Moderna, but the FDA does not have complete data. Califf says they'll act as quickly as possible, but stresses the need to analyze all information and data before making a decision. There will be no delays. That's a, uh, a clear um, statement, but we can't set dates until we see what's in. A COVID vaccine for younger children could become available as early as June. That's when advisory committee meetings are tentatively scheduled. Califf says they're waiting for Pfizer's application. He took part in a question and answer panel in person at the Association of Healthcare Journalists 2022 conference in Austin. Advocates with the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition would like to see the Catholic Church apologize to American Indian and Alaska Native people for the church's role in U.S. boarding schools. The coalition would also like the church to make available boarding school and mission records to tribal nations, tribal citizens, boarding school survivors or descendants, and Native organizations to review. This follows Pope Francis's apology in April to Canada's Indigenous people for the Catholic Church's role in Indian residential schools. Healing Coalition board member Joni Romero says the Pope's apology is a step. There's so much momentum happening right now, and much like our Métis, our Inuit and First Nations relatives in Canada, we want an acknowledgement as well here in the United States. And it's important to also understand that each community and their respective experiences are going to be very different in terms of what they define as reparations, what that could look like. I think that the next opportunity would be for the Pope to come to the United States as well, to step foot on our soil here on Turtle Island and to begin having those conversations with our communities. Healing Coalition Deputy Chief Executive Officer Samuel Torres says the coalition has helped with legislation in Congress to establish a Truth and Healing Commission similar to the one in Canada. Canada is in some ways, shape or form, uh, a bit further ahead than the United States. As it relates to the work in the coalition, we um, helped to write uh, both H.R. 5444 and Senate Bill 2907, the Truth and Healing Commission Bill on Indian Boarding Schools Policy Act. Um, and we are generating a lot of interest, a lot of uh, doing a lot of education work and advocacy around the bill. 
but this is work that needs to be codified into law and needs to be uh, included within the political discourse of the United States. The Healing Coalition is seeking a response from the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops about efforts in the U.S. to address the harms committed against Indigenous people across the country. The Pope's apology to Canada's Indigenous people follows meetings at the Vatican with First Nations, Métis and Inuit delegates in late March to the beginning of April. Quapaw Nation Chairman Joseph Byrd has been selected to represent Eastern Oklahoma as a liaison to the U.S. Justice Department. He'll serve on the Tribal Nations Leadership Council representing the Bureau of Indian Affairs, Eastern Oklahoma District, which includes nearly 20 tribes. The council is set to meet with the U.S. Attorney General this month to discuss funding, the implementation of VAWA's reauthorization, missing and murdered indigenous people, and public safety in Indian country. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Information on 37 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org. The Indian Loan Guarantee and Insurance Program has worked with lenders for almost 50 years, supporting them as they support you. Need startup funds or a refinance? Information at bia.gov dci, which supports this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. A prominent Native artist is accused by more than one person of inappropriate sexual conduct. At least one of those allegations would constitute a criminal act if accurate and law enforcement officials choose to prosecute. Other allegations against the same person come from an organization that says he appeared to be grooming young women who considered him a mentor. Right now, those allegations are detailed on social media and the news site IndianZ.com. The unfortunate reality is women are put in the position of having to be on guard all the time. Men are also victimized to a lesser extent. Today, we're going to hear some strategies for recognizing and dealing with situations like this so people can avoid sexual predators or know how to get away from them. We'll also hear what men need to know about their own behavior. And we want to warn you up front, this discussion will likely go into detail about the subject of sexual assault. So if you'd like to join our discussion, and we hope you will, you can call in at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. We have three guests on the show today. Our first guest is joining us from Chicago, Illinois, Janie Pochel. She's an auntie of the Chai Nations Youth Council. She's Soto, or Key First Nations. Janie, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Janie, another high-profile sexual assault accusation in Native America. How does this make you feel? Um, I think it just happens too often. Um, unfortunately, even people who have, uh, even people who work against sexual predators, uh, our spaces still get infiltrated by them. Um, oftentimes, they use people like myself and Auntie to get close to young people who will be able to feed into their 
tactics um, and take advantage of them. Well, I, I, I just, you, we hear about it so much more and, and I'm curious, is it a, a growing problem or are we just hearing about it more or is it about the same as it's always been? What's your thought on that? Um, I think it's probably the same as it's always been. Uh, it's just now we have the power of social media. Um, women have more rights than we used to. We are listened to more often now. And the problem is just coming to surface. It's just being seen now. As before, we were oftentimes told to keep our mouths shut, um, keep it behind closed doors, settle this away from uh, prying ears and eyes. And it was just everything was always kept a secret. And I think recently, um, through the leadership of mostly young people, uh, we're learning to call these behaviors out in community settings and have these conversations um, out loud in our communities. Now, these allegations, grooming behavior, and this is just one example, and we're not going to talk specifics because these are just accusations that we know so far regarding this one individual, but grooming behavior, like, what does that mean? What does that look like in, in real life? I think a lot of times it, it's like certain red flags that we would ignore. Um, like an older person calling a younger person baby, um, like them taking on a mentorship role and then turning that mentorship into like a sexual conversations. Um, it's usually somebody like if, a, from what I've seen, a, pow a person in a power position or who has influence in the community or has a skill will take on um, like mentees and they'll use their position to um, like they, if they, they like put out signals like, Oh, do you like my hair? Oh, I don't do you, like they'll flirt with them. And if they get, if they get any, um, if they get like receive it back to them, then they'll continue that process. And it's not just grooming um, people that they're trying to abuse. It's also, um, grooming like enablers of their behavior so like um this person was a friend of mine you know and i'm a i'm an advocate for people um to voice like sexual abuse and to call these things out in our communities so i think um him using somebody like myself was a way it was a grooming tactic as well and um if i Maybe if I wasn't educated about these things, I might have defended him um, like I've seen a lot of people do. So taking advantage of a position of power, influence, trust, it, it seems like a lot of this has to do with boundaries and setting up appropriate boundaries. So what can we do as parents, as adults, as uh, guides for younger people to teach them about setting up appropriate boundaries so these types of incidents don't happen? Um, I think, well, what we do in our community, we have the Shine Nations Youth Council um, opened a garden, First Nations Garden. It's a healing space. Um, and one of the things that we, like one of the etiquette rules that we have is we don't allow sexual predators child molesters, rapists, women abusers, we don't allow them in that space. So people who come into that space know that 
we are doing our best to keep this a safe a safe place for them. Um, we uplift the voices of the people who call out these behaviors. Um, we listen to them. We believe them. And I think uh, creating those spaces first is necessary because of all the grooming that people like in my generation went through on keeping these things silent and like it's nobody's business. So now that we're setting up boundaries of like, you can't come here, we're having, a, we're centering victims now instead of centering abusers' feelings, which is what we've mm-hmm. been doing for so long. Uh, so I think the first step, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Jenna, I, finish your thoughts. I, I think the first step is creating uh, the boundaries of making sure that they're not allowed in these spaces. They're not given access to our community and they're definitely not given a platform. Um, but unfortunately, so you mentioned, um, go ahead. Uh, unfortunately, these spaces are um, far and few, like far, like um, in Chicago, only the First Nations Garden has this uh, rules of no abusers allowed. So you mentioned victims and I'm curious, are there certain risk factors? Are, are, are some young people, young women in specific, are, are they more vulnerable than others? Or can anybody really be victimized in this way? I think anybody can be victimized. Um, uh, just, But I think young people, just since they're more trusting, they're more naive, um, they get taken advantage of. And especially like if you're looking for that mentor, if you're looking for somebody like um, if maybe if you don't have a strong family unit or if you've been abused yourself, a lot of times they see that and they take advantage of that. They try to um, like they'll like try to say, well, oh, I've been through this, too. Um, You can trust me. I know what you're going through. Uh, and they'll take advantage of young people because they haven't seen this throughout their life. They haven't seen this happen before. They've never been taken advantage of before, maybe. Um, so these older people will come in and um, say, like, oh, I understand you. I get I get what you're going through. Or say stuff like, you're very mature for your age. I can trust you. You know, like, those are, those are red flags um, to me. Yeah, they, they seem to be red likes to me as well. And um, it's just so, so interesting to consider. And, 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 you know, like there's when when there's an issue, when there's a situation and it, it's just not right. Uh, and a person, unfortunately, we know for a fact that many of these cases of sexual assaults go unreported. Either people are embarrassed or they're ashamed or they're frightened. Uh, which I think is a huge problem, right? Because they just don't get reported and they don't get investigated. So what is the, the right way to report and and call these incidents out when they occur? I think the first step is having that unit, a strong unit of people that you can trust and you know that you can go to and say, this happened to me, and that they'll believe you right away and they're not going to question you know, why did you let this happen? Or the blame doesn't get put onto the victim first, um, which is usually what happens. I know um, I'm a victim of sexual assault. And when I came forward, it was, you're a liar. You, What do you want? You're, you're trying to get something from these people. You want clout. Like there's always these things that 
that happen after you come forward that makes you a victim again. Um, and the first thing we need to do is create a space that you don't get re-victimized as soon as you come forward. Um, I think also uplifting whatever story that they have, um, sharing it to your networks, because these people are public health risk. They're a, a safety hazard for our communities. Um, so making sure that, just like any other public health risk, that the word gets out into the community that this is happening um, and people can, you know, gather around the victim and make sure that they're safe and they feel secure and they're believed um, right away. But um, that doesn't that doesn't necessarily happen, especially in Native communities. Um, there's a lot of people who, even when they're convicted, uh, we see them still be put up on a pedestal. Um, just this past year, the American Indian Center in Chicago invited a convicted rapist into our community on the head drum. Um, they just hired a convicted domestic abuser to work with youth, you know, so, and then they ended up banning the Chinese Youth Council speaking against these, these um, actions, you know, so it's something that's frequent in our community. It happens a lot. And um, the only thing we can do is use whatever platform, whatever voices we have to speak out against it. And you mentioned the capriciousness of of these allegations and how some people get accused, some people get charged, others don't. It doesn't seem to really follow a specific uh, policy or ordinance with that regard, which is really concerning, as you mentioned, Janie. So we're going to talk more about this topic after our break. If you've got a question or a comment, again, the number 1-800-996-2848. That's the number to call. People get so much of their information online, but a few native-owned and operated newspapers continue to bring important information to people's doorsteps. Printed newspapers still have a role for many native readers, and we'll find out how they continue to stand out and provide a vital service to their communities. That's on the next Native America Calling. Mesa Lands Community College can help you lead the way in your chosen field. At Mesa Lands, where one in three students is Native American, you get hands-on opportunities working one-on-one -on -one with instructors in wind energy, where students go up the turbine in their first semester, silversmithing with access to the largest foundry in the Southwest, and blacksmithing in the cowboy arts. Mesa Lands has a national top 10 rodeo team, too. Info and applications at mesalands.edu. Mesa Lands Community College supports this program. Thanks for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about strategies for avoiding sexual assault or getting out of situations where you become vulnerable to unwanted attention. A reminder that our talk today deals specifically with sexual assault. If the subject upsets you, it's best to skip the show. If you want to join our conversation, you can by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. Also, if you want to confide in someone else about sexual assault, you can call the Strong Hearts Native Hotline. That number is 1-800-799-SAFE. Our next guest on today's show is joining us from Fairbanks, Alaska. Janelle Chapin is a Technical Assistance Manager for the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center. She's from the Caltag Tribal Community on the Yukon. Janelle, thank you so much for joining the show today. 
Good morning. So Janelle, earlier we were talking before break about some of the risk factors, uh, talking a little bit about what grooming looks like, how some of these predators operate. And, and more and more, we are seeing victims and survivors turning to social media as a platform for making allegations and sharing their stories. Is social media the right channel for something this serious? I think it brings attention to what's happening in our communities and it brings, and it starts conversations. Now, in this case that, that happened uh, last month and has gotten a lot of media attention now, this is somebody who is a prolific figure in Native America, a person who's somewhat famous. Uh, what about all of the sexual predators who are not famous people? Does it concern you that we don't see this same level of attention and outrage against some of those individuals who aren't prolific? Unfortunately, we know that's true. We know this victimization is happening at astounding levels in all of our communities across the country, and we need to bring more attention to it to bring healing to our communities. And how do we do that? How do we bring healing? What what needs to happen so that we can just continue to fight this plague that is impacting not only Native America, but it, it's happening all over the United States with uh, alarming frequency? What do we need to do to protect our young people better, specifically our young women? I think we begin with education, talking about healthy sexuality and beginning with, and it begins young, like in my home, sexuality begins with like talking about terminology as they grow older like when you're bathing and that type of thing so that they're not ashamed of their bodies and that they have the tools and the knowledge to communicate as they grow up and what about we are the more free we are to speak if something is happening to us Okay, so becoming familiar and comfortable in our sexuality and having those communication channels to to reach out to people. And unfortunately, it sounds like in many cases, those figures, those trustworthy figures are not present. And I know that's uh, the role of organizations such as yours that we have on the show today and some of these other resources. Can you talk more about that, providing that support structure for individuals that don't have that at home or in their communities? So we see our schools and our communities doing it in all different ways with education and peer supports and different programs that our tribes are doing throughout the country and bringing in support for our kids and different educational programs. And some of those are just providing healthy mentors and a supported environment. And there's lots of supervision around, so those opportunities are never present because until you really know someone and have interacted with them with long periods of time in different settings, we don't necessarily know who is safe. And we know that oftentimes predators are putting themselves in positions of power, whether it's a cultural um, bearer or other power positions in our communities. And until our communities are ready to start having those tough conversations and not allowing them space at the table and allowing them time to heal and allowing room for our healthy men at the table, those conversations aren't going to begin to change. In the healing process, what does that look like? 
for a survivor of sexual assault. What's the first step in that journey? So for some people, it looks different. For some people, it's talking about it openly. For some people, it's just finding ways that help them deal with it on their own one-on-one, um, depending on what traditional, how traditional they are in their communities, whether it's connecting for me spiritually when I am dealing with a survivor, the way I'm going to take care of myself afterwards is I'm going to bead or I'm going to be outside. I'm going to reconnect to whatever's grounding me. And we're going to teach survivors to find what grounds them and helps them feel healthy again. And we're going to teach them what healthy boundaries look like. Because once someone has been violated, their boundaries are skewed and we have to relearn what healthy boundaries look like. And is there any frame of reference or timeline with this journey of healing can you point to like a specific period of time that it it can often take or does it all depend on the survivor and the situation it's all going to depend on the survivor and the situation everyone has different levels of resiliency depending upon their own past history and we know that all of our people are survivors of colonization and how that affects us with intergenerational trauma and the levels that our families have adapted, that's all gonna affect our ability to heal and how we move forward and what our coping skills look like. The lengths of time they were being abused, if it's the first time they've been abused, all those are factors on how fast someone's gonna recover. Or, and we know that survivors have triggers after incidents, and so they need to begin to look at those triggers to begin to heal and help themselves avoid them and to re- bounce back and recover as they happen. Now, you mentioned earlier uh, traditions, cultural approaches. How important are those in this healing journey and in programs and support systems that are designed to foster healthier living and and healthier approaches to these issues in Native America? So I think we need to learn where we come from in order to ground ourselves and move forward and to heal because our identity is such a big part of everything that we do. And some of us may not live in our ancestral homelands and we may not have access to everyday things around us. And so that looks different for all of us, but it's all such an important part of who we are because we're so connected to our lands and our people and our spirituality. And that is such an important part of our healing, whether whatever part of the journey we're on. Janelle, earlier we heard Janie and she spoke about how some people are held accountable for these atrocious acts and others are not. Some people, we just kind of look the other way. We just say, we're not going to bother with them. We're not going to call them out. Others not. So why is that? Why can't we just consistently call these individuals out when needed? Why does there have to be this gray area where some people, they get a free pass and others don't? Our communities are all so hurt from the effects of all of this. And depending on what level we're at and healing is how our communities are going to respond to it. 
and we would hope that our communities would start at the, like the very smallest incident. We're going to hope that our communities are going to respond, but we know not all of our communities are there yet, but that's the goal that we strive for so that none of our people continue to be hurt by this. Let's bring another voice into our conversation now. We have Greg Graycloud, and he's speaking with us today from Mission, South Dakota. He's the co-founder of the Wicha Ugly Native Men Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault Program. He's from the Crow Creek Sioux Tribe. Greg, welcome back to Native America Calling. Hey, thank you for having me. Well, I thought it was really important that we have a male voice in today's conversation. Our producers definitely made sure that we did that. And uh, again, really appreciate you coming on the show to share that perspective. Tell us more about your organization. Who do you work with? Um, my organization, we work with primarily uh, men who are convicted of violent crime. We work with them in the federal system, state system, and tribal system here on the reservation of Rosebud. Um and we work also with, along with that court order program, it's a six-month course um, where we help men find healing from the violence that they created in the past to hope to, to uh, find a better man in themselves by finding that healing. Um, and we work, we work also in the summertime with youth, boys, ages uh, 11 to 17, 18. Um, and we host camps in the, in, the, in the past in the summers we have. Um, we're looking at maybe changing a little bit this summer, but we work with youth and young boys in that age teaching a culturally specific healthy masculinity. And do many of these young men and even older men that you work with, are they exhibiting or have they exhibited these types of behaviors that we've talked about earlier, the grooming, taking advantage of a position of status or influence? Yes, definitely. And what, what do you, how do you approach that when you're working with somebody who has been an offender and um, what, what do you say to them? What's the first step with regard to dealing with offenders? Uh, dealing with offenders, perpetrators, uh, men who are um, aggressive, uh, men who convict violence on two people. The very first step is, is finding the origin of that man's or that person's trauma. Um, and it's very key. Um, so I was, um, I worked with uh, a mental health equine facility here where I was an equine therapist on the reservation um, and working with that and learning that trauma with the origin of trauma and where that comes from using horses, um, finding a way that you take horses will turn a man into a child. Why? Because the horse is a much bigger, stronger physical being. And that man will turn into a child. Then we will find the origin of his healing or his trauma. Once we find that, we learn and we guide and foster those, those ideologies and those beliefs that that boy will have out of fear. Because that boy is so fearful of something, he will lash out in anger. But that boy is no longer a boy. He is a man. And, and oftentimes... Those men who lash out that way, they continue to act like that fearful little boy. But when they act out, they hurt people. And people mm -hmm. get hurt. And depending on their own childhood trauma, and this is no way, shape, or form, a justification for the women and, and, and survivors and victims and those who haven't come out with sharing their story. This is no way uh, a justification in saying that this is right for them to do this. 
But everything that we do as men to hurt others comes from a trauma. And when we locate where that trauma has come from, we learn that we treat that as a child, that healing is a child healing. And we treat it that way, then you can watch that child grow rapidly. You watch him grow rapidly because he's, he's wanting to feel more safe. And, it, it, and when it comes down to it, people, when my own healing process as well, it came down to it feeling afraid and not, not wanting to be vulnerable. It was tiring. It was tiring feeling afraid. And, and that healing process is so addicting to jump into once it started. But that's where that's where where our step one and the approach that we've taken, and it isn't the only approach. There are many approaches. The Janie out in Shire Nation are are taking their gardens approach, and that's a very beautiful thing. So shout out to them. And uh, but that will like, be a step one in the approach we've taken. It sounds like a, a really profound approach that you're taking there, and you mentioned the the horse and that whole um, cultural component just seems like it's a really, a really novel way to address this. And I think that so often when we're confronted with individuals that have perpetrated these types of crimes, there's this immediate revulsion. We just want to, to remove them. We want to extricate them. We just want to kick them out and, and just treat them as criminals. Uh, I see that so often in native America and other communities as well. And, um, how is what are the harms of doing that of taking that just really really hard line approach of this is a criminal and we need to lock him away period hmm. traditionally in 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 our people here in lakota nation lakota in your territory they call it ski ichuo uh, i might be even pronouncing that wrong so the cultural folks language linguistic folks apologize <laughs> uh but it it means to be put outside and culturally, that was done when um, somebody committed violence. Uh, historically, when a man committed any type of violent uh, interaction with his spouse or partner or towards somebody in his home, they would put them outside. And they, the community would wonder what is going on. And the community would gather that way and ask the, 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 the mother or the woman in that home, what is the matter? But then it was a little different. Our communities were structured. Now, I don't want to say stronger, but it was without the level of trauma we have today. And so it's a little bit different. But the difficulties in doing that today, uh, our people, no matter what nation you are, you're a virtuous people. You are a virtuous kind of people. And because we're virtuous, those value systems of honor and respect, like respect, for instance, is so hard in our culture ingrained into us that oftentimes we're a little timid and we do necessarily don't want to create more trouble in the, especially when we're surviving. You don't want to create more risks when you're already surviving. You're not living a, a beautiful life. You're surviving a life of trauma or difficulty. It's in our communities. And uh, that would be the difficulty is that support system around you. It almost would need to be a movement coming forward. Yes, advocating and putting it on social media is really good because it makes the victim feel heard. But in a movement in the sense of creating more processes of change, such as policy change, creating a legal system, creating a legal system of change, 
that can be done that way and having it taken care of in, in the court system. That is very difficult as well. Well, Greg, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's not just um, an issue of, of spirituality and of community and culture that, that needs to be considered. It's also with regard to the legal system and just there's so many working components with these situations in terms of, of how healing and justice and, um, and, and wellness is achieved. And it, it's just obviously a very, very complex issue, a challenging issue, something that's difficult to talk about. And if you do have a question or a comment, please give us a call. 1-800-996-2848. We're going to talk more about this after our break. Are you Native American with a disability and feel you have not been able to access services for you or a loved one? The Native American Disability Law Center can help. The Native American Disability Law Center is a not-for-profit 501c3, and there is no charge for this help. More info at 800-862-7271 or nativedisabilitylaw.org. Who support this show? This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Still time to share your thoughts regarding our conversation today about preventing sexual assault on an individual level. What can men and women do to help avoid assaults or to get out of a difficult situation? Join the discussion by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. And Janie, I want to ask you, uh, when a woman, young woman, middle-aged woman, and woman of any age finds herself in one of these situations and uh, they're just getting in too deep, they're in a hotel room alone, for example, or they're in some place where they don't have anyone around who can help them or advocate for them. What do they do? How do they extricate themselves from that danger? Um, I think if they have to be very careful because when the, one of the first things an abuser would do is isolate you from your friends and family um, or put wedges in between you and uh, support networks. So when you're by yourself, I think it's important to um, pretty much reach out almost to anywhere. Uh, there's a lot of um, like Walmart, you can go to Walmart and say I'm trapped or, you know, like there's places that aren't necessarily community places, but um, are organizations that can help you if you're in a dire situation like right now. Um, but uh, I think just like getting getting the getting yourself um, out of that like shame place because um, I know there's a lot of shame that comes with being a victim of abuse um, and it's it's on purpose you know it's um, it's like a very uh, methodical thing that happens um, so when you're feeling alone and you don't know what to do um, I think just putting out you know, putting out anything like asking for help in some way where your abuser cannot see it is really important. Um, but really getting away from them, it has to be done carefully 
um, because if they get wind that you are trying to flee, there's a likelihood that they could um, hurt you, kill you, um, all of that, all of that stuff. So I think uh, really just if you can escape, you know, like you churches, um, stores, like a lot of places will protect you that day until you can figure out who who in your family or who in your network could help you. Um, and I know it's tough to do, but um, there's not really a clear answer for something like that. You know, I think it's case by case. Janie, how about some ground rules that women should commit to ahead of time? For example, just avoiding hotel rooms alone or, or having a buddy system, a friend of some sort who can kind of advocate for them or be in the background if they, if necessary, or even just being careful uh, with somebody that you're not familiar with and, and alcohol is involved and things like that. Or there's some some things that, that, that people can do, women can do ahead of time to just better safeguard themselves? Uh, I think uh, it's really hard to, like, say, oh, protect yourself, protect yourself. Um, when we really are, you know, we really should be protected out in the world as it is. But I understand, like, how, how it is, like, how the world changed. Um, it's very patriarchal. Uh, women are not centered like we used to be. So uh, we're, we're seen as objects, we're seen as trophies, we're seen as things that aren't human a lot of times, and we're just um, uh, like an, uh, an accessory for a man. So I think um, really feeling it out, like trusting your gut instincts, um, looking like, especially at like, a bar asking the bartender do you see this person often um because bartenders usually know who predators are in their bar um if you're at a hotel hotels are are trained to keep an eye out for sex trafficker sex traffic victims um so there a lot of people in hotels are trained to help somebody who's in an emergency situation um same with bars like bar bartenders people that work at bars they see these things and a lot of times they are trained more than someone like myself in emergency situations like this. That's, that's really helpful to know, Jenny. Thank you. Janelle, I, I want to ask you because earlier we talked about how many of these cases, they go unreported. It's, it's really tough in many cases for a survivor to step forward. So, Janelle, can you point to any recommendations for how to report sexual assaults? Should a person go straight to the police, or would you recommend that they contact a resource provider first, such as someone like yourself, to help them pre prepare for what's ahead in dealing with authorities? Many of our tribal communities have advocates, and that's who a lot of people choose to report to at first, seeking help. If the assault has been recent, we encourage law enforcement or health um, clinics so that they can get a forensic exam if that's something they want to do or at least be checked for safety. In your experience, tribal police, are they well equipped to react and handle reports of sexual abuse? Alaska is a public law 280 state and our tribal police do not respond to 
sexual abuse cases. So we have to wait for troopers in the majority of our communities, which could be days to hours. And typically our victims need to leave our, their own communities and their homes to report. So it could be a long time before any action is taken then. So what, um, what, what can a person do in the meantime while they're waiting for authorities to step in? Um, we know that many of our cases are going unreported and that many of our women are choosing to work with advocates and to talk to people and report their healing in that way. Um, if they're wanting to report, then we encourage them to contact law enforcement. And we are seeing more cases reported, but we also know that we have an unfortunate amount of delays just because of the way our law enforcement is set up because of Public Law 280. Okay. Now, one thing that, that I really want to talk about as well is what we can do to better protect young people from sexual assault incidents on an organizational level. And the situation that prompted today's show occurred at the same time as a conference uh, hosted by a very well-respected nonprofit in Native America. And it's really ironic that that conference was titled Honoring Native Survivance. And this is something that has concerned me for a long time, because as I've shared on the show before, in addition to hosting NAC, I also work as a community development consultant. I've been doing that for almost 15 years, and I have done a lot of outreach to Native youth in many different Native communities. I've worked with and presented to young people in schools, colleges, after-school programs, youth empowerment conferences, tribal programs, really more venues than I can count. And I can tell you folks today that in all those years, I have only ever once had an organization, it was a large university that sponsors a summer program for high school and college age native students. Only one organization that ever required me to submit to a background check. And, and I think that's something that we really need to talk about and why we don't have better oversight of events and gathering places. Because if someone is a school teacher, I'm sure they're more than likely to have to submit to all that stuff, fingerprints, background checks, everything. But if someone is a consultant or a community volunteer who visits a school for a day to provide workshops for students or some presentations, no one seems very concerned about making sure that individual has been vetted beforehand. And I know that from experience just from my own work. So uh, Janie, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I think, like, uh, when we do our, we have a forest school um, that we work with, and all of the volunteers have to be fingerprinted. Um, I think that's an important step, but I know that it's overlooked because it costs money, and a lot of our organizations do not have money. Um, but also, a lot of these cases are unreported. Like, if we were to do a background check on this uh this particular perpetrator that we talked about, nothing would have came up. We wouldn't have been able to see anything. Um, so what we would have had to do was vet his um, previous acquaintances, um, but we knew his family, like there's like levels to it. Um, but a lot of times background checks won't help. Um, but when they, uh, when they do help, a lot of organizations choose to go the free route, um, which here in Chicago, the free background check is a DCFS uh, background check that just sees if you have any open cases about with uh, violence against 
children specifically, and that's it. Um, so a lot of our organizations say we do a background check, but we know that background check isn't thorough enough to catch what we already know these people did. Um, so I think background checks are really important, but I know that a lot of, since these things aren't reported a lot, and even when they're reported, the conviction rate is very low, that um, it's hard to rely on that. But I think that's one barrier that can protect our women and children. Thank you, Janie. Greg, I want to ask you, when working with, with men and talking about the consequences of these types of actions, do you warn them about the threat of prison, uh, losing a job, being stripped of prestige, just forever being known as a pariah and a predator? Does that kind of information, giving somebody those types of um, that information, does it have any effect when it comes to prevention, do you think? Mm. We don't, I don't, we don't choose to warn them. Um, because in that, in that state, at that age, in that point of your life, uh, you know the consequences of doing things. You know the rights and wrongs. It just depends on that person's trauma and what they don't really care about. What we do not necessarily warn is we label. Um, we talk about things culturally. There were there were there were ways we dealt with things culturally as a people here specifically in the Ochepti territory. There's a, a name Chenia. Chenia was a name that was used as a label for men who were violent or men who were egotistical and used that in, in a sense of uh, violent. Um, but it. it it literally means uh, to think with, and it's a male term specifically, so to think with your penis is what the term means, um, and men were labeled that. So when the men come into a program like that, and in our program specifically, their names are taken away, and we will no longer call them by their name, first and or last, because that's their family's honor. That's the family's honor that they've earned. What they've earned is a label of Chenia now. And so we'll call them by that until they've earned that back, until they've uh, gone through that process of healing and, and earned the right to be as honorable as their family. And so Chenia, wouldn't, we wouldn't warn them for the uh, bad things that are going to happen to you if you don't. That's not our responsibility. That's his. Uh, so mm -hmm. our responsibility is to find an educational way in a form to assist and foster a way of healing for people who have trauma. Greg, earlier we talked about risk factors for survivors. What are, um, what do you think are factors that can contribute to somebody becoming a sexual predator? Are, you, are there even, even specific types of jobs or professions or industries that seem to have a higher prevalence of sexual predators. Can you talk about that? Um, I don't know about specific things have a higher sense. Catholicism. <laughs> Churches. Mm -hmm. Sorry to say that on the radio. <laughs> um, sorry, sure. I'm sorry. My people come from an experience like that. Churches were the most predatorial uh, men and, and staff that they had in churches. So there. But working in the communities, in a, in, in a more community level around here and me, 
those predator the predatorial behavior is done in various levels it could be done in programs it could be done in a tribal uh, leadership it could be done in um traditional leadership by men who pray it could be done by men who perceive themselves as a leader in their traditional community you watch how people follow the person then you'll see you watch how they even treat other people then you will see and it's our responsibility as adults to to create a distance and boundaries in that not our children don't leave that to the children that's not their responsibility Greg, I really appreciate you speaking from the heart today, and we are running down on time, but could you quickly just provide um, information? Where can our listeners go to learn more about the resources your organization offers? Uh, yeah, I got a little fired up there, my bad. Um, WeChawUglier.org, uh, W-I-C-A-A-G-L-I.org. Um, there's also okay. a Facebook page, uh, uh, but it's WeChawUglier.org. Got it. Janie, how about you? Where can we go to learn more about the great work you folks are doing? Um, you can go to our website, shynations.org, chinations.org. Uh, we're also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, and the garden page, First Nations Garden. And Janelle, the resources available, uh, available up there in Alaska, where can we learn more about them? At aknwrc.org. Uh, do you have Facebook as well, social media, or anything like that? We do have Facebook and we have Instagram as well. Wonderful. Well, listeners, that's all the time we have for our show today. And I want to thank my guests, Greg Graycloud, Janie Pochel, and Janelle Chapin for helping us navigate a challenging and critically important topic, awareness and prevention of sexual assault. Please join us again tomorrow for a look at the state of native print journalism with so much information going online, is there still a role for newspapers that come to your house every day? We'll answer that question tomorrow on Native America Calling. Until then, I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one of a kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. First baby, don't know where to start, CMS program coverage, prenatal service, enroll today.
contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.